The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Thank you. 
to serve this church as many days as God might give us. And uh, I hope, hope if this isn't it, right? We're keeping on. Yes, okay. okay. You gotta work with me, but right. Sorry, I was just wondering what was happening here. They said, walk up here. And I didn't know. Uh, and I didn't know, like, first of all, we didn't know what the picture said. Look how beautiful my bride is. And those, uh, my, my wonderful children and uh, grandkids, and you don't have enough time for us to start talking about our grandkids because we uh, we really, really, really appreciate the love and fellowship of the saints we have here at Temple. We've seen so much, we've grown so much, and uh, as I said, we hope to continue to do that for the days to come. But most of all, most of all, what Sam and I want you to know is we, while we were once sinners, Christ died for us. And that he's our Lord and King. So if you hear anything today, we want to tell you that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. He is the only Son of God, and he came and he paid the price for our sin and your sins. As he died on the cross for us, and he rose again, as we just sang about on the third day. Because of that, if you came in here with a burden, he can lift it. If you are searching for salvation, he can save you. And so we hope that we can join our hearts and our hands and our spirits together and worship Jesus as we go through the rest of this service. Thank you for letting us be a part of your family. Amen. Let's pray for Danny and Sandy. God, we thank you for the cunning hands. I thank you for this man and this woman. I thank you for how they model Christ. I thank you for how you've transformed their lives, God. I thank you for how you continue to. And I thank you, Lord, for how they serve faithfully with a smile on really good days and really hard days, which just consistently follow you and help others to follow you. So we just stop. A moment like this is not enough to say thank you to the sort of people that they are. But we take this moment nonetheless to give praise to Jesus Christ for Danny and Sandy. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Danny and Sandy, thank you. We're in Mark chapter 11 today as we continue on in our series, A Good and Gracious King. And today we are going to talk about donkeys and figs and turned over tables. Now I know you're thinking, Chase, you've already told us about that Thanksgiving where your uncle got drunk. So I want to take a nap. But that's not actually what this is about. See, Jesus came to earth, fully human and fully God, and he came into broken lives in the first century in Jerusalem, those were sometimes made up of donkeys and figs and turned over tables. So Israel's Messiah came right there to bring redemption and salvation. And so Mark 11, like the rest of Mark, is packed with action. It's got the triumphal entry, it's got the cleansing of the temple, it's got the cursing of the fig tree. And over and over in Mark, Jesus kind of for the first third of the book, he would heal people and say, hey, don't tell anybody I healed you. Then he began to tell his disciples, kind of over the second third of Mark, I'm the Son of Man, I'm going to be delivered up to the hands of sinful men, I'll be crucified, I'll be buried, and I'll rise from the dead, but we're not telling anybody this just yet. And so for the first two-thirds of Mark, it covers about two and a half years of Jesus' life, and then the last third of Mark covers the final week of his life, and that's where we are today. He's kind of been hinting at this reality, and today, as loudly and clearly as he can, he's going to say to Israel and all the world, I'm the king, I'm the Messiah, I'm the promised one, and he's going to do so with donkeys and figs and turned over 
table. So let's read Mark 11, 1 through 11. Then we'll just kind of work our way through the chapter. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you'll find a cold tide on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. So they did just that. They found the cold. The people said, What are you doing? They said, The Lord has need of it. And we'll bring it back. And so they let him take it. Verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, others spread leafy branches. We know from the book of John, these were palm branches, and they, they cut these from the fields, and those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Well, God, would you open our eyes and help us to see the truth about King Jesus today? As we ask some questions in this text, God, help us to be formed by your word, shaped by your word, and moved by your spirit to follow this good and gracious King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, as Pastor Dave taught us, one of the things that we saw is there's this blind guy, Bartimaeus, and he sees Jesus and he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. The people are saying it again. They're waiting for the king that God promised. And Mark kind of gives us this narrative that shows us that Jesus is Lord. Jesus entering Jerusalem as he does, it's a big deal. All four gospel writers mention this text, and they do so because it tells us something. And to find out what it's telling us, let's just ask six questions of the text. So the first is this, why the colt of the donkey? Why did Jesus come riding into Jerusalem on the colt of the donkey? He told them to go and get a colt on which no one has ever sat, untie it, and bring it. Well, unused animals were used for religious purposes, right? The ark was carried by oxen that had never had a yoke on them. Kings, when they rode a horse, nobody else was allowed to ride the king's horse, but Jesus isn't coming in on a king. He's coming in with a foal of a donkey, and I, I think there are a couple of reasons he's doing it. One is because his kingdom comes through humility. That's how glory comes in this kingdom. It comes through humility. You remember what humility is, right? It used to be really popular among Christians. It's kind of gone out of favor here lately. See, in God's kingdom, glory comes through humility. And Jesus sat on the donkey. And as he does, I want you to hear, he knows what he's doing. It's a fulfillment of prophecy, but he does it on purpose so the people will see the king is coming. Five or six hundred years before Jesus was born, the prophet Zechariah wrote about judgment against Israel's enemies and their king coming to Jerusalem, and here's what Zechariah said about the king coming to Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. So they're waiting for David's kingdom to come. The king's going to come, righteous and having salvation to see. But then it says this strange thing, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, and the foal of a donkey. Well, it 
saying, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the warhorse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. See, Israel wanted the king to come, but they wanted him to come and make war against the Romans to crush the Romans who've been oppressing them. But Zechariah says, No, when he comes, I'm going to remove the war horse and the battle bow, and he shall speak peace to the nations. When this king came, he was going to come and bring peace through the blood of his cross, through his resurrection, life for all. I believe his rule shall be from sea to sea, and his river, and from river to the ends of the earth. Well, Israel wanted a kingdom like that, but they wanted it to come for a conquering king, not a crucified king. And you can imagine what this looks like. Here comes the king riding on a donkey. They came, I both talked about this on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the beginning of the Passover feast. It's going to last for for several days, and the Romans, when a feast like this would happen, there'd be a lot of people, they'd get excited. If anybody had sort of revolutionary ideas, the Romans wanted to crush those, and so they would have the governor come riding in with military and all their regalia, pomp and circumstance. Pilate lived in Caesarea by the sea, so he would come in on the west side of Jerusalem toward Herod's temple. People would line the streets, they'd throw flowers, they'd be cheering on. But on this day, it's a little bit different, right? The crowd's a little bit different. It's not as big. They're not cheering. And maybe when he was riding in, or maybe when he stopped at Herod's temple to relax, you could hear something. He was on the west side, or on the east side, there's something echoing off the mountain. There's this crowd cheering. Maybe we ought to send some soldiers to hear what this commotion is because the crowd is screaming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Can you imagine as this crowd cheers what they cheer? See, the real parade has come to town and Pilate is not overseeing this one. They're waving palm branches. They're laying their, their clothes down like the people did when Elisha, you know, when Ejected this king. And they're saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They wanted David's kingdom to come. And they're very quoting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you see. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118. So, Lord, we pray. They're waiting for salvation. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're waiting for this king to come. See, the crowd sees a connection between this and David's kingdom, but they're misunderstanding what the kingdom is about. Samuel, he prophesied to David, he told him about Solomon's coming and then about his kingdom coming forever. In 2 Samuel 7, Samuel said, listen, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you. He will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is Solomon. He's going to build a house for my name and I will establish this throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. And then verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure 
forever before me. There's this one king that's going to come, and the kingdom will then last forever. So these people want this kingdom to come, but they're so fickle. And in just a few days, when they realize he didn't come to overthrow Rome, they're going to choose to release an insurrectionist named Barabbas and crucify the king of Israel. Now, in their evil doing, in that very moment, God's plan is going to be fulfilled. All the armies of Satan can't win because Jesus is actually going to deliver them from something much worse than Rome. He's going to deliver them and the whole world from sin and death and Satan and his armies. It would be like us, maybe in my childhood, back in the early 80s, cheering if Jesus rode into town because he was the one who was going to save us from Russia back then. Or maybe today, he's the one who's going to save us from Islamic terrorists. But the truth is, Jesus is going to save us from something much worse than that. He's going to save us from our own sinfulness, from our own wickedness, from our own fear and doubt. It's a much more beautiful salvation. No mistake, the king is on his way to get a crown, but it's going to be a crown of thorns, not the kind they're expecting. Then verse 11 is just kind of this weird verse. You think this is just a great climactic moment for the kingdom. They're shouting in verse 10, Hosanna and Ahias, blessed is the kingdom of our father David. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. What happens next? And when he looked around at everything, it was late, so he went out of the city. I don't know why Mark included that, but it's there. But on the following day, Jesus was not going to be thwarted from his plans. So we wonder why this cult and why this crowd. On the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing the distance of victory was in leaf. And he went to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And so Jesus cursed the tree. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Well, why in the world, as we've dealt with donkeys, do we now have to deal with figs? What did this tree ever do? Is a question I want us to ask. Right? He says, may no one eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. If you look down at verse 20, the next day they passed by and the fig tree was withered. And Peter says, look, this fig tree has been cursed. Well, what is Jesus doing? Verse 12 says, he's hungry. We hold that Jesus is fully human and he's fully God. He's fully God. Isaiah 9.6 says he's mighty God, everlasting Father, wonderful counselor. Isaiah 9.6 also says that he is a child born and a Son given. It was no illusion that he was fully human and fully God, so he's hungry. So there is something, I think, on surface level that's happening. Jesus is hungry. He expected that this fig tree would be in bearing fruit, even though it wasn't the season for figs. And so it's not. And he says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. These fig trees, they have these massive leaves. And it wasn't the season for them to bear fruit, but it's true in the Middle East that often, even when it's not season for them to bear fruit, these big trees will have fruit on them. It's a little bit green, but in the first century it was very common to eat. Was Jesus just mad at the tree because that's what's going on? 
Or is there something more perhaps Mark would want us to know today? I think the answer is B. I think there's something more Mark would want us to know. See, figs are this symbol of fruitfulness, this symbol of life, this symbol of prosperity. And I think a parable is happening here, and it's a parable about fruitless Israel. They were made to be a light to the nations. But they were fruitless. They were made to point the Gentiles to the truth about who God is. And they were failing at their vocation. They were all leaf, no fruit. And Jesus is pronouncing a curse on their religion. They aren't connected to the vine. Just a few days later, we think, well, this is in Mark, that's in John. How can they be connected? But it's just like two or three days later in John 15. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. But Israel wasn't abiding in the Messiah. They were rejecting the Messiah. They weren't trusting the Messiah. And he says, you're going to wither away. It's judgment on a fruitless nation who is meant to be the light of the world. They want a king, but they've forgotten why they exist. They're all about law works and not about the world God was coming to save. Their religion didn't spring forth from grace. Their affections weren't stirred from the Messiah. So a question for us, does our religion spring forth by grace? Are our affections stirred for Jesus Christ? Or are we embracing a morality that just kind of sets us apart from and its superiority over others? To the gospel that brought in a king on a donkey came to do away with self-exaltation. That's what the tree did. It's not about the tree at all. It's about Israel. The next question is, what happened in the temple? They came to Jerusalem. Verse 15, And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything for the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. They feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So here's Jesus on the week where the temple's going to be full anyway. There are a lot of people coming in for the feast, and he just walks in and messes up everything. But he's teaching them after he turns over tables, after he won't let anybody carry anything through the temple. He's messing up the money changers' business. And he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? See, here is what's happening. People are coming from all around to worship at Passover. And in the Gentile court, there are these money changers, and they're taking in people's money. It's different tribal money from different places where they would live, or maybe it's Roman currency. The Jews wouldn't allow Roman currency. The reason they wouldn't is because it was in the temple. It had an inscription on it, a face on it, Caesar. It was a graven image, and the Jews would have none of that. The Jews, obviously from the Ten Commandments said, no graven images, no idols. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you won't see one single statue of Moses or Abraham or King David, because those are graven images. They didn't worship idols. They worshiped God. 
But the money changers were supposed to be giving people a fair deal with this money. They would give them money so that they could buy a sacrifice to worship God. But instead, the money changers would give them, instead of unblemished, perfect sheep, unblemished, perfect doves, they give them bad animals and charge them high prices. They're doing the exact opposite thing. Instead of exalting God, they're lining their pockets. And Jesus is having none of it. So he starts flipping over tables. He's not letting anybody carry anything for you. He says, you've made this house of prayer a den of robbers. What in the world? was a house of prayer for all nations, and there's little, if any, concern for the Gentiles. You think about what they're doing in this day, and Solomon's prayer for the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. When a foreigner who's not of your people comes from a far country for your name's sake, they'll hear of your great name and your mighty hand, your outstretched arm, and they come and pray toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all which the foreigner calls, in order that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. God, we want you to be worshipped in all the earth. Just like your people worship you, so that they might know this house is called by your name. That's what Solomon prayed, and these people have turned this into a den of robbers. So Jesus evokes a couple of Old Testament passages when he says it's to be a house of prayer, and you've made it into a den of robbers. And, and when he does kind of evoke these two Old Testament passages and do what he does. He's fulfilling again another prophecy from hundreds of years before he was born. Isaiah 56, 7 and 8. These I will bring to my holy mountain. That's the temple mount. I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. That's all nations, languages, tribes, and tongues. The Lord who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those all already gathered. It's a house of prayer. But then he quotes Jeremiah 7, 11. The prophets and the priests were doing evil. And God says through Jeremiah, Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So Jesus is looking at the leaders of Israel. And he's going, hey, you're like the false prophets that Jeremiah talked about. You're bad shepherds, you're evil, you're doing wrong. This is not what this house is for. Malachi had said the Lord would come and bring judgment in the temple. He told the people this would happen. There's 400 years of silence. John the Baptist shows up and then Jesus shows up. And here he is the week before he dies speaking judgment on the temple. Malachi 3, 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when this happens? The answer is not the money changers. You continue on in Malachi, verse 3 of chapter 3. It says, He will sit as a refiner, a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Like gold and silver. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. Then I will draw near 
to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hard worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Well, they would mock the Gentiles. Widows would come in there. Fatherless people come in there. They've got nothing, given everything they have for sacrifice. The money changers are robbing them. And give them a bad animal for worship. And judgment comes in. Jesus, in this very act, is showing himself to be king. He's acting in, in righteous zeal for the name of the Lord, but he's also showing, I'm the one the prophets spoke of. I am the king of glory, and they wanted to kill him right then and there, verse 18 says. They were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. This is really amazing when you think about it. Here's the Messiah showing himself to be the Messiah like the Scripture says he, he would be. And the people are astonished at his teaching and the religious leaders go, not, oh, this must be the Messiah, let's repent and follow him. But rather, we've got to destroy him. He's bringing the kingdom different than the one we were expecting. But they couldn't. It wasn't Friday yet, and so when the evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning, and they see the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, I love the fig tree, and you cursed his withered. So it's the morning, and they're headed back to the temple. Jesus has just done this. People wanted to kill him, but he's just not afraid. He knows nobody can take his life. He's going to lay it down of his own accord. So he's not scared. Then Peter asked him a question. Well, why does Jesus answer Peter how he does? Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree, and then you cursed his withered. And Jesus said, have faith in God. He says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it. It will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses as well. But why does Peter get the answer he does from Jesus? I think there, there are a couple of reasons. I think mainly, though, it is that he wants him to have faith in God. He says, if you say to this mountain, be cast in the heart of the sea, you believe in your heart, it'll be done. Was Jesus talking to Peter about moving mountains? So I, I don't know about you, I've never, like, a, I've been frustrated on a drive through Colorado. There's so many curves, right? But I pray I've never, I've never just thought, oh, let's move this mountain. Well, some people believe Jesus is talking about the Temple Mount. Jonathan Edwards believe that. He said, kind of this loud voice, temple worship is not the center of religious life anymore. You could say that this mountain be cast in the heart of the sea and it will be done for you because Jesus is the center of religious life. And surely he's saying that, but I think there's more to it as well. Have faith in God. Don't doubt in your heart, but believe what you say will come to pass and it will be done. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Well, what is Jesus saying here? Is this kind of like he's giving us a rabbit's foot? You rub this rabbit's foot, you'll get what you want. You say this the right way, you'll get what you want. Hey, I'll be your genie, and you just tell me what you 
that's a dangerous way to think about that. And I think the reason is is because if, if you think God can't refuse you whatever you ask Him, then that kind of makes you God. That's idolatry, not prayer. Well, what sort of faith is it that moves mountains? I think the answer is in verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What kind of faith moves mountains? The kind of faith that even says, I'll die to myself and forgive those who harm me. See, just days later, Jesus is going to be on the cross, beaten beyond recognition. His beard's been ripped out. His thorns have been shoved in his head. He's bleeding. He's dying for humanity. And he looks at the very people doing it, and they're mocking him. And says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, that sort of faith is this death to self sort of faith. Can you imagine it? So he says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, so your Father, who also is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Do you have anything against anyone? I mean, I bet nobody in this room does, right? We live in this time where nobody's mad at anybody about anything. Nobody here probably has anything against anyone. And what Jesus calls us to do is just this kind of ultimate dying to self. I'm going to take this debt and I'm not going to act like it didn't happen, but I'm going to say, no, I, I forgive this. I die to the anger I think I have the right to. I die to the hurt I think I have the right to. I'm going to lay that down. I'm going to consider this painful. I'm going to look at you and say, I forgive you. I forgive you. Just kind of a couple of application points. Do you have anything against anyone? Because this seems to say, if you don't forgive, you don't have the sort of faith that Jesus is helping his people would have, so that your Father in heaven might forgive your trespasses. This saving faith seems to be the sort of faith that transforms us into a forgiving people. As a, a TBC goer, what do you think this kind of life-altering faith is? How can that be manifested in America? And he said, one of the things that I would say is that Western believers would need to radically alter their priorities around the gospel. Began to tell me stories of Iraqi and Syrian believers. They work seventy or eighty hours a week. They got families. And then they give two nights a week to share the gospel, to train others to share the gospel, to pray and study. And I hear that, and we hear it, and we go, well, wait, but do you know what my life looks like? Do you know how busy I am? And yes, faith that moves mountains is the sort of faith that would radically rearrange our lives around the gospel. If we really believe, if we really have faith in God. Refusal to forgive is a statement that we don't understand what it means to be forgiven. And refusal to reorient our lives for the sake of the gospel is a statement that we don't understand who the king is. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Do you have anything against anyone? See, the last part of this chapter, I think, really is just a, 
a display of people who don't know who this man is. That's the last question. Who is this man? They entered again to Jerusalem. As he's walking in the temple, the people see him. The leaders want to trick him. And they ask him, is John's baptism? Or they ask him, rather, about what authority are you doing the things that you do? Who gave you to this authority? And if he says God, they're going to accuse him of blasphemy because they don't believe he is the Son of God. And he says, I'll ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from God or from man? And they say, we don't know. They're afraid of the people. If we say from God, he's going to ask, then why did you persecute him? If we say from man, the people will be angry with us. So they said, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's rejecting them as Israel's leaders. Here's what's going on. They think they're rejecting him. They don't think he's the Messiah. Who is this man? But he's rejecting them. He's turning away from them. I'm not telling you about what authority I do these things. He's not revealing himself to them as he has his disciples. Well, this man, who is he? Because who he is changes everything. Because if you're in Christ now, the temple's not the house of prayer for the nations. We are the house of prayer for the nations. Well, the temple of the living God, are you making disciples for his glory? Because Jesus came to Jerusalem on a donkey to die, but he's going to come back and he won't be riding a donkey. So as the people who wait for Jesus to return, uh, just a couple of questions. Number one, couldn't we all use just a touch more humility? We probably all could. Question number two, are we trying to satisfy ourselves with trees that bear no fruit? And question number three, are there tables in our hearts that God needs to turn over so that our worship might be ordered rightly? See, Revelation tells the story of what it looks like when Jesus is going to come back. He's not on a donkey that I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. He goes on to say, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who Jesus is. So the reason we follow this king, the reason we forgive, the reason we reorient our lives around his kingdom is because this means something for us. We've got these short little lives, but then there's eternity. I was reading a book yesterday morning toward the end of it. The author began to describe what this eternity is going to be like. Sin will be completely eliminated. Nothing unclean or immoral or spiritually half-hearted will be there. All thoughts will be true. All desires will be free of any self-exaltation. All feelings will be calm or intense in perfect proportion to the nature of the reality felt. All deeds will be done in the name of Jesus and for the glory of God. Every particle and movement and connection in the material world will communicate something of the wisdom and power and love of God. 
and the capacity of the glorified minds and hearts and bodies of the saints will know and feel and act with no frustration, no confusion, no repression, no misgiving, no doubt, no regret, and no guilt. All our knowing, whatever we know, will include the knowledge of God. All our feeling, whatever we feel, will include the taste of the worth and beauty of God. All our acting, whatever we do, will comply and sweet satisfaction with the will of God. And we will sing forever the song of the Lamb who was slain, which means we will never forget every sight, the sound, and fragrance, and touch, and taste in the new world was purchased by Christ for us, His undeserving people. This world, this new world, with all its joy, cost Him His life. Every pleasure of every time, our thankfulness and love for Jesus Christ forever.